Today we come to the 12th and final sermon in our series entitled Major League, a study of the minor prophets. This morning I invite you to take your Bible and draw your sword, turn to the last book of the Old Testament, to the prophet Malachi, or otherwise known as the Italian prophet Malachi. Amen. Malachi chapter 3, I want to read verses 6 to 12 in your hearing. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, Please stand out of reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Malachi chapter 3. Let me begin at verse 6. I'll conclude at verse 12. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your fathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Malachi lived about 400 years before the coming of Christ. He was the last prophet to say, thus saith the Lord. His ministry occurred following the Babylonian captivity. By the time of Malachi, 50,000 Israelites had already returned to the sacred city of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. By the time of Malachi, the temple had already been rebuilt. By the days of Malachi, the city had already been refortified. And even though the people of God had returned to the land, the people of God had not returned to the Lord. Following Malachi, there was 400 years of silence. No more prophet to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. No more man of God to tell the people of God a word from God. There was divine silence. For 400 years, God divinely imposed a self-inflicted gag order. And he did not speak. He did not speak until the day of that camel hair wearing locust-eating, fire-and-brimstone-preaching redneck named John the Baptist burst onto the scene. But until the days of John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan River, there was divine silence. God did not say anything else. So what was the last thing that God said to his people? Throughout the book of Malachi, there are at least six accusations that God levels against his people. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, they doubt the love of God. God reminds them, 
that age-old statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. All you have to do is look around to see the evidence of my compassion for you. You're back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. The cities have been refortified. Why do you doubt my love for you? The next accusation comes in chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 9. They dishonored his name. They brought blemished animals for sacrifice in worship. The sheep that they brought were blind. They were sick. They were crippled. And they knew you're supposed to bring a lamb without spot, blemish, or defect. Not only did the people bring blemished offerings unto God, but the priest accepted them. God went so far as to say, I wish that somebody would shut the front door of my temple so that useless fires cannot be lit on my altar. The depth of God's disgust towards his people went so far that he said, I will smear your faces with the offal. The offal was the inner parts of the animal. It was the intestines. It was the half-digested food. It was the trash. It was the dung. It, it was just the inner parts of that animal. And God says, I am so disgusted with what you are offering up to me. I will smear the fall all over your face. The next accusation is leveled against God's people in chapter 2, verse 10 to chapter 2, verse 16 where God's people defamed the institution of marriage. Israelite men divorced their wives. They married heathen women. They went to the altar and they cried, but their tears were empty. For there was no repentance in their life. They did not turn back to God. They made a mockery of marriage by his design. They tried to redefine what marriage was as an acceptable institution in the sight of God. The next accusation was leveled against God's people in chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 5. It's there where God says that my people have misrepresented my character. These people said of God that he calls evil good. No, if there's one thing I know about God, it's this. God is good. He is right. He is just. He knows what is good, and he calls it good. He knows what is wicked, and he calls it wicked. God does not mix words. He does not call what is evil good and what is good evil. Yet these people in the days of Malachi, they were accusing God of having a perverted character. And God is the one who is just, and he is the only one who is the justifier. The next accusation against God's people is leveled in chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 12. That's our passage this morning where God indicts his people as thieves and robbers. The last accusation is given in chapter 3, verse 13 to the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 6, where the people said, it is futile to serve the Lord. God levels an indictment and accusation about their empty worship. They said, we're not getting anything out of this. It is empty. We're not getting anything from worshiping God. And God promises there's coming a day. It will be a great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that day is coming. And I will send Elijah as a forerunner. For you will know when the day comes. And the last thing we hear God speak in chapter 4, 
verse 6, is an emphasis upon that great and dreadful day of the Lord, which has been a common theme woven all throughout the minor prophets. This last prophet to speak, the man named Malachi, he levels six accusations against God's people. They had returned to the land, but they had not returned to the Lord. If you're familiar with the book of Malachi, you know that it reads like a Hollywood script in the sense that there is dialogue. There are questions and answers littered and laced all throughout the four chapters. It's as if Malachi anticipates the rebuttal of the congregation. For there are places where the crowd rises up and says in response to the Lord, Do you love us? And then they will ask, how have we defiled you? In our passage, they will ask the question, how do we rob God? Their questions are not just questions of defiance, but but they're questions of defiant disobedience that is kind of trimmed with some rebuttal and resistance. They, They almost seem angry at God for even asking and leveling these accusations against them. Who, are, who is God to say this of us? This idea that uh, their questions of rebuttal are kind of defiant towards the Lord is found in the translation of the New Living Translation of the English Bible when you get to our passage, chapter 3, verse 7, where, where the question is asked from the crowd, how do we return to God? In the Living Translation, it tries to capture the essence of this question by translating it, how are we to return to God for we've never gone away? They thought they were just as close to the Lord as ever. They thought they were living holy lives. They thought they were being obedient to God. How dare God tell them to return to him? They haven't gone anywhere. They they haven't left God. They're right there with God. They thought they were living holy, vibrant, spiritual lives before the Lord. And yet God levels six indictments against them. It's one thing to try to retrieve the prodigal son. Something totally different to try to recapture the older brother. Malachi is not dealing with prodigal sons. Malachi is dealing with older brothers. The prodigal son, that story of Luke 15, the prodigal son, he, he knew he was in a far country. But the older brother, who was just as far from his spiritual father, he thought he and the father had the same address. For he had never left the confines of the family farm. The prodigal son, he knew that he stunk. Smelled like a pigsty. But the older brother was just as foul as the younger brother, but the older brother thought he smelled good. He was tricking himself. He was only fooling himself. For he was just as far as the younger brother. He was just as foul as the younger brother. He was just as in the far country as the younger brother, even though he had never left the confines of the family farm. It's one thing to try to recapture a prodigal son it is another thing to try to reclaim an older brother and Malachi is dealing with a bunch of older brothers it's not that they're in the far country and they don't they don't know it I mean that would be bad enough no 
they think they've never left God to begin with. They felt like they never had abandoned him, that they were holy in his sight, that they were doing everything that he wanted them to do. And God has the audacity in our passage to call them, to compel them to return to the Lord. He begins in chapter 3, verse 6, by speaking of his immutable character. I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. There are some things about God that are unchanging. He is the immutable, sovereign Savior of the universe. Because he doesn't change, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his behavior. So he says, because I'm the Lord who doesn't change, my promises to you are always good. You can always bank on them. So I'm telling you, the Lord says, return to me. They ask the question, how are we to return to you? The implication is we've never gone away from you. We've never left you. How are we to return to one that we've never abandoned? And God responds to their question with a litany of questions. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. How do we rob you? They ask. In tithes and offerings declares the Lord. One of the ways God wanted his people to return to him was to return to generosity, to return to being obedient in the call and command of the Lord our God to be generous towards God and towards others. This call of generosity is a mark of spirituality because how we regard our stuff reveals a lot about how we regard our Savior. How we regard our stuff reveals a lot about how we regard our Savior. So here in our passage, the Lord commands his people to return to him because they have become stingy. And he is not a stingy God. And he did not raise stingy, stingy children. So we are to return to him in generosity, in obedience to generosity. Because God accuses them of a sanctimonious stick-up. He accuses his own people of robbing him blind. And he says, I want you to return to me. How are we to return to you? By returning to generosity. By giving your tithes and offerings. This morning, I want to make three statements. Because I believe that it is possible for even you and me to rob God and be guilty of a sanctimonious stick-up. The first statement I'll make is this. We can rob God. It's possible. We can rob God. In verse 10, the Lord says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house, declares the Lord. The tithe was the first fruit offering. It was the first 10%. The word tithe literally means 10%. So in the Old Testament, it was commanded for God's people to bring the first 10% to the temple, to the Lord, literally to a storehouse or a storeroom found in the temple. They were to bring the first 10% of their grain and the first 10% of their produce, the first 10% of uh, the food of the field, the first 10% of their resources. They were to bring that 10% to God. Now, why? Well, part of the reason was because 
that tithe was going to help take care of the priests and their families there in and around the temple. You may recall that the priests are descendants of Levi, and the Levites were not given any land allotment when the people went into the promised land. So part of the tithe was going to help the priests and their families. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says every third year, the tithe is to be used to minister to the poor and needy that surround you. So the case could be made that the reason the tithe was instituted uh, was so that God could take care of God's ministers and God's ministries in and throughout the temple. But in the days following the Babylonian captivity, God's people got stingy. They failed to give. The storeroom in the temple that should house the giving of the tithe, it was empty. Nehemiah discovered this when he returned. And when Nehemiah found it, he literally saw that there was some pagan that had set up shop in the storeroom. Now, Nehemiah got mad. He laid hands on that fella. I mean, he literally kicked him out. He beat him to a pulp. I mean, he he kicked him out. He said, hey, you're not supposed to be there. That's the sacred spot where God's people are supposed to bring their tithes and their offerings of grain and, and produce. And they're supposed to do this because it belongs to the Lord. Nehemiah got upset. Malachi would have seen the very same thing. In fact, in the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah predates Malachi. In those days, some of the priests had abandoned their calling. They just started working in the field because they needed to put food on the table. So by the time Malachi gets there, he's 400 years before the coming of Christ. I mean, God's people have been back in the sacred city and in the southern kingdom of Judah for 100 years now. And still, they had not returned to generosity. The storerooms were empty. And God accuses them of robbing him, holding up the sovereign Lord to a sanctimonious stick-up. I wonder sometimes, is it possible even for you and for me to rob God? I know that we don't live under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. The new covenant is signed, sealed, and delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we don't live under the old covenant we live under the new covenant and I will say that there are some similar principles in both old covenant and new covenant even though the particulars of those principles may differ from one covenant to the next let me try to explain I'll use one example in both the old covenant and the new covenant God calls his people to be generous he never he never calls his people Uh, to be selfish. He always calls his people to be generous, both the old covenant and the new covenant. But the particulars of that generosity are different. Under the old covenant in the Old Testament, it is specified that God's people must give a tithe. In the New Testament, it's not specified how much we are to give. In the Old Testament, It is specified to a degree that everybody understood. You give the first fruit. You give the first 10%. It's not the leftover. It's the first fruit. You give God the first 10%. In the New Testament, there is no equation. The the only particular to the principle is something found in like uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where it says that God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful is the Greek word hilarious, from which we get the English word hilarious. 
That God loves a hilarious giver. That your generosity ought to put a smile on God's face. That your generosity ought to cause you to chuckle a little bit because you think to yourself, I'm not that generous in and of myself. It's got to be a mighty move of God for me to give this much money, this much cash, this much stuff unto the Lord. I mean, this is not of me. It's of God. It makes me smile. It's so epic. It's so crazy. It's so off the charts. It is hilarious how much I'm giving unto the Lord. So the only principle... Our only particular of the principle about being generous is that we are to be cheerful givers. So it could be understood that according to the New Testament, under the New Covenant, that it would be quite possible for some of God's people, maybe most of God's people, maybe even all of God's people, to give more than 10%. That 10% It may be the starting point of our generosity, not the finish line of our generosity. You say, but preacher, how do you get that? Well, I've never known Jesus to lower the bar of commitment. You remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus utilized that tool, you've heard it said, but I say unto you? He said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say unto you, don't even get angry with your brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Yet I say unto you, Don't even look at a woman lustfully. Jesus seemed to always raise the standard of our holiness. He he never lowered the bar. It seemed that he raised the bar. He, he, He internalized that which was external. So it could be that Jesus would want us to be even more generous than the Old Testament covenant demands. Even beyond that, the principle of a tithe is something that predates the Mosaic Covenant. In Genesis chapter 14, it is Abraham who gives a tithe, 10%, to the priest named Melchizedek. It's in Genesis chapter 28 that Jacob promises to give a tithe of his resources to the Lord. Now both Abraham and Jacob predate the giving of the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai where Moses himself received the Ten Commandments and the stipulations. So the Old Covenant, yes, it does mandate the giving of 10%. The New Testament doesn't give you any specific equation. But when you stop and think about it, I think that, that Jesus raises the bar of commitment. He never lowers the bar of commitment. So with that being said, I wonder, is it possible Even for us, under the new covenant, is it possible for us to rob God? Is it possible for you and for me to have a sanctimonious stick-up to the Savior of the universe? Now, what I'm about to say, I, I need to preface it by assuring you that I don't know much of anything about your individual finances. I mean, unless you tell me, I don't know anything. I don't know how much money you make. I don't know how much money you give here at the church. It's set up that way on purpose. I don't need to know who the biggest donor is. I don't need to know who doesn't give anything to the work of the church. I I don't need to know those things. So I don't know how much money you make in a given year, and I don't know how generous you are. I don't know how much money you give Uh, through the general budget here at First Baptist Church Pelham. But I do know a few things that I can 
broadly apply to everybody listening to my voice. I got a couple of slides just to kind of help us think through some of this. And so what I did was I looked back in the year 2022. Now, why did I do that? I did that. So um, that was the most recent full year. And in 2022, collectively, we gave in excess of $2.9 million through the general budget here at First Baptist Church Pelham. That's about $40,000 shy of $3 million. I look back and I realize that as a faith family, we have 794 families. Now, a family can be described in a multiple ways. A family could be a single individual person. Maybe it's a widow. It could be a husband and a wife that constitutes a family. It could be a husband and a wife and one child. It could be a husband and wife and multiple children. So we have various understandings of what a family could be. But in, in, in those uh, ramifications, in those uh, specific uh, outlines, we have 794 families. I also looked up the median annual household income for Shelby County. And did you realize that last year that median annual household income was more than $82,500. So then that got me to thinking, well, how much money collectively did we make as a faith family last year? And I took those two numbers and I multiplied them together and I reached a number that's greater than $65 million. That together, this faith family received $65 million. You say, that's no way. There is no way that our faith family, uh, that we got $65 million. Well, all I did is I just took the median household income times the number of families that we have, and it reached in excess of $65 million. So a tithe of that would be $6.5 million, right? Are you with me? $6.5 million. Now that number is more than twice what we received last year in the giving of your tithe and your offering to the Lord. You say, now wait a minute, Pastor. I, I don't want to burst your bubble, and I don't mean to puncture your, your mathematics. Um, but, Pastor, don't you know that every member family is not a giving family? And you know what? Tragically, you're right. Not all of our 794 families gave. How many of those families gave, you ask? 563. 563 families gave something last year. So then I took that 563 number, multiplied it by the median annual household income of in excess of $82,500, and I reached a total of more than $46 million. Of our giving families, collectively, we received an income of more than $46 million last year. A tithe of that would be $4.6 million. Now, $4.6 million is nearly $1.7 million more than we received last year. So I asked the question again. Are we ever guilty of robbing God? Are we ever guilty of a sanctimonious stick-up? I think the answer has to be yes. For some of us, we've robbed God. Now, what do you do with that information? 
I think you have four options. You can either ignore it. You could become defensive about it and get angry and try to poke holes by giving excuses of why those numbers actually are true. You could be convicted and do nothing. Or you could be convicted and repent. But from my vantage point, I think those are are only four options. Either we just ignore everything I just said, or we get defensive about it and come up with excuses, or we really are convicted, but we have no desire to change anything in our own personal life, or fourth and finally, which is really the one that I want you to go for, is for you to be convicted where you need to be convicted and repent and make changes. Let me, um, let me say uh, all about those finances in a different way. I think that what we could say based on those statistics is that even our giving families give 6% to the church. When we, uh, that, that's just simply doing the math, 6%. When we pull in all of the families, our giving families and our non-giving families, as a church, that 6% number drops down to 4.5%. So we're giving of our tithes unto the Lord somewhere between 4.5% and 6% on average. Once again, are we ever guilty of robbing God? Do we ever hold him up to a sanctimonious stick-up? What do you do with that? Well, you can either ignore it, you can get mad about it, you can be convicted and do nothing, or you can be convicted and repent. This morning, I just want to tell you that it is possible for us to rob God. That's the first statement. The second and third statement will be much faster. You may say, praise the Lord. Second statement, when we rob God, we're robbing ourselves. When we rob God, we're robbing ourselves. The Lord said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this, declares the Lord, and see if I do not open up the floodgates and bless you so much that you don't even have enough room for it. Apparently, God longs to bless his people. God really does want to bless us. And maybe, according to this passage, the imagery can be constructed that God's blessing, they're behind a closed door. And the way we open that door and unlock that door is with the key of obedience in our generosity. The Lord says, test me in this. You know, very rarely does God ever give you permission to test him. Usually the Lord says, trust me in this. But here he says, test me in this. You have permission to test the sovereign savior of the universe when it comes to his promise regarding your generosity. The Lord says, not only am I willing to bless you, I am eager to bless you. So test me in this. I double dog dare you, God says. I dare you to do this. I double dog dare you to do this. I want you to test me in this because I will prove that I am so faithful to my promise. When you give unto me, I will give back unto you. When we rob God, we are robbing ourselves. We are robbing God of the opportunity to bless us. 
Now, let me be very clear. I do not want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. By God's grace, I'm trying to get something into you. I know that what I'm about to say doesn't make mathematical sense, but it makes perfect kingdom sense. That when you give the first tithe 10% unto the Lord, you can do more with your 90% if you give the first 10% to God than if you give nothing and you withhold the 100% for yourself. I realize that makes no mathematical sense. Pastor, how can 90% be greater than 100%? I don't know, but I just know by experience that when you give God the first 10%, you can do more with 90% than if you keep the 100% unto yourself. It doesn't make sense mathematically. It does make sense biblically. Now, let me give you a word of encouragement. Some of you may find yourself in that category where you give very little, if anything, under the work of the church. You may not give anything, or you may give a percentage or two of your income. And when you think about giving 10% to the Lord, you nearly had a heart attack. I mean, I saw your eyes rolling. I mean, some of y'all nearly passed out. You think, I can't give 10%. There's no way I can do that. Okay. This is a great time of year for you just to evaluate your generosity. We're at the end of a fiscal year. We're about to start a new year in 2024. It's a great time for you just to evaluate. And, and if, if you don't give much of anything unto the Lord, can you make a promise next year you're going to give 3% of your income to Christ in the work of his church here at First Baptist Church Pelham with the promise that in subsequent years you'll increase that by a percentage point and eventually you'll get to that 10% threshold and that's really just a threshold because according to the new covenant there is no equation that doesn't limit you only to 10%. You could give more than 10% if the Lord were to lead you and bless you to do that. For those of you who give 6%, can I challenge you and encourage you to say, hey, you know, I probably, I, I, next year I need to give 8% with the promise that the following year I'll give 10% unto the Lord. And just test God in this and see. See if what he says is true. He gives you permission to test him. It's one of the rare times in all the Bible where God gives you permission to test him. Test me in this, he says, and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven. You won't have enough room for it. Why? Because God longs to bless his people. You can't outgive God. He's got more resources than you do. Everything you have is because of him. Our generosity is tied and tethered to Calvary. God gave his best. He gave sacrificially in giving Jesus unto our salvation. So in response, we give sacrificially and we give our best unto him. We're not giving for salvation. We're giving from salvation. Because God has given us his best, we want to offer unto him our best. Because we know that when we rob God, we are robbing ourselves. We're robbing ourselves of blessings that the Lord wants to give to us. Now let me give a word of caution real fast. Don't give in order to get from God. Don't give because you think I'm somehow going to stiff arm God into giving me a divine dividend from heaven. It doesn't work like that. 
I've long been taught and told that if you give because it pays, it won't pay. Don't just give as a bribe unto God. No, give as a blessing unto God. You give unto him because he's blessed you. And you're not giving in order to get something from him. But God just says, I'm so eager to bless you that you can test me in this and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven so that you don't have enough room for all the blessing that I'll give unto you. There are some people today who just might need to evaluate their financial contribution, evaluate how generous they are. And simply for all of us, can I just ask that you look at your finances and see how much that you've given unto Christ here in the work of First Baptist Pelham and ask God one simple question. Are you pleased with this? And if God is pleased with this, go on about your bad self. I mean, if God is pleased, great, go on. Keep on doing what you're doing. But if God is not pleased, you only have one of four options. You can ignore God. I wouldn't advise it. You can get angry at God. won't get you very far. You can become convicted and do nothing in response, which is not real obedient. Or you can simply ask God, are you pleased with this? And if he says, no, I'm not pleased with your level of generosity, then you can become convicted and repent of your sin and give back to him. When we rob God, we are robbing ourselves. Here's the third statement. When we rob God, we not only rob ourselves, but we also rob others. When we rob God, we not only rob ourselves, but we're also robbing others. When God's people returned to the Holy Land, they were primed and poised to be a blessing to other people. But when they got there, they were selfish, stingy. They did not give to the Lord. So because of that, the whole nation was under a curse. The way that was manifested is that uh, the crops did not yield their food. The vineyard did not yield its grapes. Instead of being a light to the surrounding nations, they were a laughingstock to the surrounding nations. God had blessed them in an effort to win an audience. And they squandered that blessing on themselves. And instead of being a light, they were a laughingstock. You know what? Sometimes God blesses you with resources so that you can win a hearing with somebody who needs to know about salvation. God gives you the resources that you have for you to use for his good and for his glory, for you to leverage everything at your disposal. That includes all of your finances, all of your financial gifts, and you leverage that for his kingdom, for his glory, so that his name may be proclaimed to make a dent into lostness. Can I tell you that when you give here at First Baptist Church Pelham, you bless others. When you give, regardless of whether you know it or not, when you give, you bless others. Now, of course, I'll speak on behalf of every staff member, every pastor, every employee of First Baptist Pelham. Thank you for your giving because you do pay our salaries. Thank you for that. I can also say that by your giving, yes, we pay our utilities. The lights stay on. You've never come in here when the lights have been disconnected. I mean, we have utilities, we have air conditioning, we have heat, and sometimes it's too cold, and sometimes it's too hot. And when it is, you tell us, and we hear you. But at least we have the utilities. 
But when you give, you give for so much more than paying somebody's salary and keeping the lights on. 14 cents of every single dollar that you give goes to others. 14 cents of every dollar that you give goes to others. 10 of those cents goes through the cooperative program. About 100 years ago, Southern Baptists got together and they said, you know, we think that we can do better if we pool our resources. We can make a greater dent into lostness if we come together and cooperate. So let's put together a cooperative program. And so Southern Baptist churches all throughout the world, but primarily here in the United States, they help to fund and they give through the cooperative program. Ten cents of every dollar you give, we pass on through the cooperative program. We ask you to tithe, so as a church, we tithe. We give 10%. What does that do? Well, among other things, it helps to support our 3,500 Southern Baptist missionaries that are stationed all over the world through the International Mission Board. So we are unique in that our missionaries don't have to raise support. The 3,500 missionaries that we have as Southern Baptists, we help to support them primarily through the giving of the cooperative program. In addition to that, we give money through the cooperative program to the North American Mission Board. And one of the initiatives that is very strategic in the North American Mission Board is church planting. There are thousands of new churches that have been planted in this continent because of your generosity through the cooperative program. Also, all six of our Southern Baptist seminaries benefit from the cooperative program significantly. Those seminaries help to train pastors and ministers and missionaries for today and tomorrow. Not only do we give through the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board and through our seminaries, but also a significant amount of that money stays right here in the state of Alabama through the Alabama Baptist Convention. And through this convention of like-minded churches here in the state of Alabama, of which we're a part of, we have 10 entities. Let me just name a couple of them for you. Because of your giving, you help keep Shaco Conference Center alive, open, and thriving. Also, because of your giving, we have the Alabama Baptist Children's Home that some of you uh, work closely with. And also, I can tell you that right now, we have one institution of higher Christian education that is sponsored by Alabama Baptist, and it's the University of Mobile. I serve on the board of trustees of the University of Mobile, and I can tell you that because of your generosity through the cooperative program and other Baptist churches through the state of Alabama, the Alabama Baptist Convention gives UM each year $3 million of undesignated gifts that without that contribution, UM could not do what we do. It's because of your giving. Now, that's 10 cents. But then I said 14 cents, so 2 cents goes to the Shelby Baptist Association. You think to yourself, whoop de do it's 2 cents of every dollar. But when you add that over $3 million, that's a $60,000 gift that every year we give to the Shelby Baptist Association, making us one of the top three to four churches of giving in our association of 66, 67 churches. We also keep 2 cents of every dollar here to do mission work. So that we can go on 23 mission trips in 2023 and 24 mission trips in 2024. Now, 
all that 14 cents has nothing to do with every year. We also, in addition to that, take up a Lottie Moon Christmas offering and 100% of Lottie Moon goes to the international mission field. And then every Easter, we take up the Annie Armstrong Easter offering and 100% of that goes to the North American Mission Board to help start more churches. And throughout the year, we do the D&D challenge where you give above and beyond the giving of your tithes and offerings. And by doing so, we significantly reduce debt and we help to motivate and plant more people on the mission field so that we can go more places and do more things for God's kingdom. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that when you give here at First Baptist Church Pelham, you are helping others. So when you rob God, you're robbing yourself and When you rob God, not only are you robbing yourself, but you're also robbing others. I find it ironic, interesting even, that Jesus died between two thieves. (laughs) And Jesus died for a bunch of thieves, including you, including me. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. When we come to the end of this sermon series, I have to I realize that I'm a thief. And I bet you are too. There have been times when you have robbed God, held him up to Gunpoint, sanctimonious stick up. When you rob God, you're robbing yourself. You're robbing others. When I get to the end of this sermon series, I'm reminded of that phrase that I've said over and over again over the last 12 weeks. Our sin really is that bad. But our God really is that good. If you're guilty of robbing God of what belongs to him in the giving of your tithes and offerings, that's sin. You say, but it's not a big sin, is it? I mean, it's not like I've murdered anybody. It's not like I'm committing adultery. It's not like I'm, you know, uh, shooting up, you know. I mean, it's not like I'm doing a bunch of bad stuff, right? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's not. not, Shh, be quiet. Just hush. When you rob God, You're sinning, and your sin really is that big of a deal. Your sin, my sin, it really is that bad. But our God really, really, really is that good. He is here to forgive. He is here to restore. He is here to encourage. He is here to bless. He's he's sitting on the edge of his throne in heaven. He's looking down into your heart and into your pocketbook. He's looking down into your mind and he's saying, hey, hey, I want you to get this. I want you to get this because I'm so eager to bless you. Don't rob me of the opportunity to bless you. Don't rob me of the opportunity just to throw open the floodgates of heaven and you won't have enough room for all I'm going to do for you. And God is eager because God knows what I know, what you know, that when we rob God, We're robbing ourselves, and we're robbing others. Friends, our sin is that bad, and our God, he really is that good. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. Lord, we talk today about a tough subject, this subject of money, but Father, we know that how we handle our stuff reveals 
how we handle our Savior. So now, Lord, we pray that you will um, speak to us. If there's one here who does not know you as personal Lord and Savior today, I pray that that person will will be reminded that I'm I'm a thief in the sight of God. And and Jesus came to die for all of my sin. And it really is that bad. And Jesus really is that good. And I need this Jesus in my life. So, Lord, I pray that today somebody may trust you as Savior and Lord. Their sin be reckoned unto you. Your righteousness be reckoned unto them and they'll go from death unto life. Lord, we also pray for all of the saints that are listening to my voice, but Lord, sometimes, even under the new covenant, we can be guilty of robbing God. Lord, please convict us of sin. Help us to repent unto you. Lord, the altar is open for us to come and pray for ourselves and our family and our children and our grandchildren. Lord, we pray you'll move. We'll respond in obedience. We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.